This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. In conjunction with Merdeka celebrations today, on Spotlight, we go back in time to early 15th century when Malacca was founded. It was the start of enormous wealth creation in the Malay Peninsula. Malacca established itself as an international port and eventually as an important centre of social, cultural and Islamic influence. What can we learn from the defining moments of Malacca's history? We speak to Barbara Andaya, a professor in the Asian Studies program at the University of Hawaii. She is one of the leading scholars on the history of Malaysia and Southeast Asia. Thank you for joining us. Parameswara founded the settlement called Malacca when he fled Singapore. What could historical sources tell us about the area he chose to make it his home and place of trade? The first thing I'd like to say is that the sources are never complete. We only have two major sources for this period and they don't always say the same thing. But it's quite clear, not from the sources but from our geographical knowledge, that Malacca was ideally situated on the Straits of Malacca where Chinese and Indian traders could meet and that that was linked by the prevailing wind system, that it was also there were overland trade routes that linked the west coast of Malacca to the east coast to across Pahang, and also that Malacca, very importantly, had fresh water. That was very, very important in early trading times. If you didn't, couldn't supply fresh water, then sailors wouldn't stop. Uh, it also had wood for, for refitting ships and so forth, and it had a very naturally defensible position with the Bukachina right behind. You could look right across the straits. So it was, in geographical terms, it was ideally situated. But the Malay memories of it talk about a very it had supernatural power when Parmesta, when uh, the first ruler arrived there, he found that it had uh, a planduk, a mouthdeer, acted in a very strange way. So that it it was right from the get go, it had some sort of supernatural. There was a feeling that this was a special place. I am guessing that Parameswara and his followers might have looked very different from the locals and they may have been treated with some suspicion. How did Parameswara claim a piece of land by the river and establish himself as the leader? Well, the, in this case, the Portuguese sources are very helpful. They do say that there were already people living there, probably Orang Asal, Orang Asli people, who spake, spoke a Malay that, that the new arrivals could understand. And at first there was a little, some weariness, but because the new arrivals didn't bring any women with them, so they married these uh, local women. And uh, according to another chronicler, the nobles of Malacca were descended from these early marriages between the new arrivals and the Orang Asli, Orang, the what they call native Malays who were already living there. Very quickly, that wariness was overcome because the founding of Malacca was to everyone's advantage. The forest people, the Orang Asli, bought their forest goods to trade. The Orang Laut bought their sea goods to trade. And traders came to buy those goods. I wonder how Parameswara then built his networks. How did he like communicate that there's going to be a new port here and how to come here and to trade? That's a difficult question. We can't know how communication operated in, a, in an oral society, but we can see that the population grew very quickly. And as soon as the population began to grow, so probably there were about two or 300 people at 
the very beginning, very quickly began to, it developed into 2,000 people. And so um, as soon as a, a, a population starts to develop, then news spreads very quickly. And the important thing in Malacca was that it became a meeting place for spices from eastern Indonesia. We have to remember that cloves and nutmeg and mace, you couldn't buy them in supermarkets at that time. They were very, very, very rare and very expensive. And they only came from a few islands in eastern Indonesia. So that when they came to Malacca and then Indians brought their textiles, their rich array of cloth and, and um, silks, cottons to Malacca, that also attracted regional trade. So very quickly, it developed into a regional trading port. I don't think the first rulers had to go out and announce that this was going to happen. It, it just occurred very quickly. And how was revenue collected? Was there like some form of taxes, perhaps? Well, everybody with all ships coming in were required to pay some sort of duty on their, on, on, based on the value of their, their cargo. They also gave gifts to the king, remuneration to the, the privileged people in the court. So there were taxes of some kind. It, these were not harsh taxes, so that it didn't discourage traders from coming. Could you give us an indication of how much trade that actually took place? Is there some value that we could attach to it? Well, that again is very difficult um, because we're talking in trade in kind. It's not always money. It's barter, people exchanging one good for another. The Portuguese compared it with some of the great cities of like Venice. They said that you know you have as much trade coming through this area as some of the great cities of of Europe. So I don't think we can put a monetary figure on it at this stage. I think that would be very uh, misleading because so much went through um, a, by barter. I understand the sultans of Malacca were very clever at building alliances, especially with the Chinese. What was the Chinese influence that helped the sultans grow Malacca as a port? Well, I think the relationship with China was extremely important. What we have to remember at this stage, that Malacca was important, but it took some time before it became the preeminent port. Uh, there were also ports along the east coast of Sumatra, like Pasai, which were older and very uh, important as well, and where Islam was already well established. So Malacca had rivals. Siam was also another rival, and it attracted a great deal of trade. So the relationship with China turned out to be very important. China needed a port along the Malacca Straits. And so for until the middle, roughly the middle of the 15th century, China could use Malacca as a port of where they could refuel ships or gather water, that kind of thing. But the, the rulers of Malacca over the 15th century sent missions to China 20 times and, some, and on several occasions went, a couple of occasions, went personally to China. They went there themselves. That was a big thing to do. And so they had a very, very close relationship with the Chinese rulers for the first part of the century. And that really helped establish their 
security in the Straits of Malacca, the fact that they had Chinese protection. The Chinese sources are very um, revealing about this kind of thing. We have some very interesting letters where the Chinese rulers told the Siamese, don't you attack don't you attack Malacca. They're part of our circle. They're part of our people. And the Parsis, they didn't reach out to the Chinese? They didn't have that kind of relationship? They didn't seem to have that kind of relationship. And I think part of it goes back to the period before Malacca was founded. So we know that the people who founded Malacca came from Southeast Sumatra. And Southeast Sumatra had very close relationships with China. And what about the Arabs and Indian Muslims? Well, the Indian Muslims are particularly important. Of course, Muslims come from all over India, but especially the Gujarati, um, but Muslims from Bengal as well. And Arabs are certainly um, in, the, in the vicinity. There's certainly um, Arabs there, but less important as traders, I would say, than the Indian Muslims, because the Arabs could mostly their trade was, was concentrated on the western side of India. Know, down the Gujarat area and so on. So they were certainly there, um, evidence of, um, of Arab trade, certainly. But probably the most important Muslim connections in this case were with Indian Muslims. We'll be discussing how Malacca became a centre of Islam in the Malay Peninsula after this. Joining us on Spotlight today is Professor Barbara Andaya of University of Hawaii. We are speaking with Professor Barbara Andaya, a professor of the Asian Studies Program at the University of Hawaii. How critical was the adoption of Islam in raising Malacca's fortunes as a global port? The Sejara Malay, the Malay Chronicles, see the adoption of Malacca as, as really a watershed. What is important is that the, the new faith, this new faith certainly had an appeal, probably mystical Islam, Sufism, had some appeal as well, but it also had practical advantages because the rulers of Malacca could look across the straits at Pasai and they could see how wealthy Pasai had become through Muslim trade. So as soon as you established a mosque and established a, uh, a Muslim environment, you could attract more of these Muslim traders. But it also helped strengthen kingship strengthened the position of the ruler as well because there was considerable emphasis on the the idea that the Malacca ruler was the helper of the world, the, the deputy of Allah, um, somebody who was religiously placed above others. And so that was an attraction to the rulers as as well. Once the, the Malacca court had accepted Islam, then the the administration, the appearance of the city changed a lot. Malacca's mosque was supposed to be the finest, was said to be the finest known in the whole of this region. And wealthy rulers were able to then sponsor Muslim teachers and scholars. Um, Islamic law was brought into the legal system. And so um, laying out uh, the protocol to follow in commercial matters like collecting debt, and marriage, divorce, and so forth. And so the prestige of Malacca rose enormously, I think, with the adoption of Islam, uh, in part because the rulers of Malacca now became part of a global Muslim brotherhood so that they could talk about themselves as the brothers 
or in the same circle as powerful Muslim rulers like the the, Sultan, the Ottoman sultans, who was, had enormous prestige. But I think it's also important to emphasize that much of this uh, conversion occurred through marriage. So the rulers themselves married non-Muslim women, and then the women converted to Islam, and this was actively encouraged, and it helped build those networks throughout the community. And everybody commented, well, when I say everybody, the observers commented on the cosmopolitan nature of Malacca, that you could hear many languages in the street, and anybody who is uh, clever and able was likely to be able to get ahead. So when the Portuguese arrived, for example, there were Hindu Muslims who were already high in the in the administration. So although Muslims, uh, there was an advantage in becoming Muslim, people of talent and intelligence were also recognised. But why Islam in particular? Was it because the Indian Muslim community of traders was a large population to reckon with? When you think about that period of time, so southeast Sumatra, Palembang, where the, from whence the rulers of Malacca originated, they were descended from that area, was Hindu Buddhist. Uh, and it was a Hindu Buddhist environment. So that was the, we assume, we don't know, there's nothing in the record that states this, we assume that that was the environment in which the first ruler of Malacca, the founder of Malacca, knew then in which he developed. I think the the attraction of Islam in relation to Buddhism or um, certainly Christianity wasn't there at that point, really wasn't really present. The attraction was because of the examples, not only close at hand in Pasai, you could see what advantages Pasai enjoyed, but also further afield in India itself and in, in the Middle East. And we have to, shouldn't forget either that the Chinese emperor, the Yongle and the, the early Ming emperors had Muslims employed in their court. They used Muslim mathematicians. So there was some influence from Chinese Muslims as well. There are mixed accounts if Islam was adopted earlier by Parameswara or much later by the third ruler, Muhammad Shah. Current history textbooks in schools give uh, Parameswara a Muslim name. So there is also a debate if the second ruler, Megat Iskandar, was actually Parameswara. Could you help us set the record straight? It's really impossible to clarify that chronology with any certainty because the records are so um, vary so much. I think that... Some of the confusion results from people who have used earlier sources like chronologies developed by Richard Winstead. But I could only refer you and any listeners who are interested to Professor Wang Gangwu's meticulously researched article on the first three rulers of Malacca, which was published in 1968. And he has used the Chinese sources extensively, and they do give dates. And the first three rulers all visited China. So he has dates for those first three rulers. And based on those dates, he has established the death of Paramaspara in 1414, 
he's established Legat Iskander as a second ruler, dying probably in 1423-24, which is, and then Sultan Muhammad Shah as a third ruler. And it's generally accepted, the scholarly consensus is that it was this third ruler um, who, who was responsible for really cementing Islam as part of the court environment. Islam was certainly there before, there were Muslims there, but really affirming Islam as an, as an intrinsic part of Malay culture is generally attributed to Sultan Muhammad Shah III, and he is, according to Professor Wang's uh, reconstruction, which I, I, I accept completely, he was the third ruler. So the Indian Muslims came in, they brought Islam. Was using Islam a means for them to increase their economic status in Malacca, for example, or to expand their influence in the royal court? They came primarily as traders. So the adoption of Islam was, was something that came from Malays themselves. It wasn't something that was imposed on them. If you, if you, or it wasn't something that people brought with an idea of gaining advantages. Malays were attracted by this faith. The rulers were attracted by this faith, but also in terms of the prestige could bring to the country and to the, the, the rulers themselves. When the Portuguese conquered Malacca in 1511, the last Sultan Ahmad Shah retreated to Johor. What can we learn from the fall of the Sultanate in Malacca? Well, we can only report what was said at the time. According to Toma Pires, the Portuguese chronicler I mentioned before, the last ruler of Malacca, Sultan Ahmad Shah, was so proud that he said, you don't have to go to Mecca. You can, even, you can just go to Malacca instead. And some people at the time thought this was such, this was so, uh, so such overwhelming pride, and that was what brought about his defeat. When I read the sources, it seems to me that one of the main reasons was the breakdown in the system of alliances that Malacca had built up over the previous century, especially with Sumatra because the Portuguese were assisted in their attack by a prince from Sumatra. And, but probably most importantly is a breakdown in court relationships. When you read the Malay memories, how do Malays in 1536 remember what had happened not so long before? They remembered it as somehow connected with the ruler's unjust execution of the Bendahara, who had been falsely accused of treason. And so it seems to me that the message that the sources are conveying about the fall of Malay Sultanate is that kings should rule with both humility and with justice, so that they should respect their subjects and remember the ancient oath that was once made in Palembang of reciprocity, that rulers should be, should be given loyalty in return for treating their subjects with respect and honour. Of course, there are other reasons as well. We can talk about the Portuguese superior firepower. We can talk about those that certainly um, assisted the Portuguese. But 
there were internal problems as well. Thank you so much for helping us understand one critical part of our history. We just spoke with Barbara Andaya, Professor in the Asian Studies Programme at the University of Hawaii. I'm Noel Lim on Spotlight, BFM 89.9. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.